0: From Swarthmore College. From Swarthmore College, this is...
1: This is... This is... This is is War News Radio. welcome to War News Radio. My name is Nick Herschel-Burns. And I'm Zane Irwin. In this episode, we look at the asylum process in the United States and the obstacles asylum seekers face. First, a quick warning. Some of the interview material in this episode contains descriptions of sexual violence. We'll warn you before each quote, but please keep that in mind. We'll hear from Philip Weiss, managing attorney at immigration law nonprofit Highest Pennsylvania, NM, an asylee from Cameroon, who has personal experience with the United States' broken asylum system. So what actually is the asylum process?
0: So the asylum process is a, an important humanitarian aspect of our immigration laws here in the United States. It incorporates uh, international human rights treaties that the United States is signatory to and are, which are part of our uh, the laws here in the United States. The asylum process has undergone dramatic changes in the last four years under the current administration, Uh, But essentially, under existing law, uh, anybody who is afraid of returning to their home country um, because of persecution that either they have faced in the past or fear in the future uh, due to certain enumerated grounds should have the right to access to apply for asylum Um, before the immigration system, uh, and that's either before USCIS, before Immigration Services, or before the Immigration Court under the Department of Justice.
2: That was Philip Weiss, Managing Attorney at Highest Pennsylvania. He provides legal representation to asylum seekers in the Philadelphia area. But what's an asylum seeker as opposed to a refugee or any other kind of immigrant? Asylum seekers differ from refugees in that asylum seekers come to, say, the United States and claim asylum once they're already here, while refugees have their status approved before entering the U.S. In 2016, the most recent year for which data is available, over 73,000 people claimed asylum in the U.S. Only 20,500 claims were granted. That's a daunting approval rate of 28%. For an asylum application to succeed, a lot has to go right. The wrong immigration judge or a lack of sufficient evidence can get you denied. Eventually, a decision is reached. Either you're granted asylum and a pathway to U.S. citizenship, or you're denied and deported to your country of origin.
1: Deportation is not a light sentence. Beyond the obvious impacts deportation can have on a person's mental health, the breaking up of their families, and their economic livelihood, Deportation can be a literal death sentence.
0: The consequences for removal are dramatic, for, for deportation of individual are dramatic. Um, I mean, first and foremost, obviously, are individuals who are asylum seekers who are fearful of returning to their home country, you know, many of those individuals have, have faced the very same persecution that they feared and, and will cause the, the underlying basis for their asylum application. And there are verified stories through, through journalists who've been doing this work, who you know, recounted the subsequent murder or disappearance of asylum seekers um, once they're deported. Uh, you know, so you know, the, the implications are, are, are dramatic. Beyond that, uh, you know, we also kind of have to think about the implications kind of just generally uh, in terms of both you know, what family is left behind here in the United States, uh, and also kind of the impact on the families uh, back in the, the individual's home country. Um, you know, so unfortunately, many of the individuals who are in removal proceedings are in detention uh, may very well have family members here in the United States from whom they will be permanently separated uh, by this removal.
2: Em knows what it's like to have the U.S. asylum system standing between her and her family. Em is a Cameroonian asylee who's been living in the United States since 2015, when she came seeking refuge from violent political persecution and unrest in Cameroon. We've changed her name for this episode to avoid further persecution for her and her family. She told me her story over the phone. I
3: reside in California, in Los Angeles. Um, I'm a nurse by profession. Married with kids, and uh, I have a brother who has been UK for the past 16 months. Uh, we're still um, looking for ways he going to be released. So yeah, that's basically who I am.
1: When she applied for asylum five years ago, her case was approved but her brother hasn't had the same luck. When we spoke with M, he was in Pine Prairie Detention Center, operated by Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, in Louisiana. Asylum seekers there have gone on hunger strikes in response to mistreatment of their cases, intolerable conditions, and repression by ICE employees. For most of the tens of thousands who seek refuge in the United States each year, the asylum process is opaque and unforgiving, and conditions in detention can be brutal, as we'll see.
0: The mistreatment of immigrant detainees throughout these facilities has been documented repeatedly for years. The abuses go from you know, lack of medical care and uh, improper medical care uh, to actual uh, reported and, and documented instances of rape and other abuses by guard. By
2: like many others, though, M and her brother faced indescribable adversity and trauma before they even got to America. We'll get into the flawed U.S. asylum system, but first, let's get a sense of where M came from and how fleeing thousands of miles from her home became her only choice. Can I ask about your life in Cameroon, what your life was like growing up?
3: Chai in general was tough. But it was also great because I have memories of my siblings when we were, we were so young and how we used to go to church, go to the farm, and just do things together like normal kids in Africa. So um, I would say it was good and sometimes it was tough.
1: M's father was an electrical engineer, but he was also the village chief.
3: The traditional thing that they do in Africa is that when somebody dies, the son automatically is the head to the throne, the next of kin. What what you call here
2: the next of kin? But M's uncle was determined to become chief by any means necessary.
3: So he wanted to do everything possible for my dad to meet the throne. So first of all I lost my mom. I lost my my elder brother. I lost my sister. I lost another brother. There was no life in my family anymore because my because of everything that happened, my dad was beaten. My dad was not himself because he had lo- he had lost everything. So we had to go live with our aunt, and unfortunately, we just got the news one day that um, my dad passed away.
1: Because of the inescapable violence at home, M had to move in with her aunt. When that became unsafe, her surviving brother the rightful heir to her father's throne, fled to South Africa, and she left her university in the capital city, Yaoundé, where she tried to start a new life as a peacemaker.
3: So I went to the University of Yaoundé. I studied um, history, and I specialized in international relations because I wanted to be a diplomat. Being in the university, I, I found love,
2: Like Em said before, she's a nurse now. Still saving lives, just not how she'd envisioned. But there's a lot of her story left to tell. This really is just the beginning.
1: When Em moved back to her home in the Northwest with her new husband, they faced political persecution and even more violence. But first, a little background. The Northwestern and Southwestern regions are home to a shrinking Anglophone minority in Cameroon, where French has historically dominated. This divide is a source of long-standing conflict in the former colony, and it isn't just linguistic, it's also political.
3: Before my dad died, he was a member of the NCNC.
2: The SCNC is the Southern Cameroon National Council.
3: This is um, not actually a political group, but it's just a group where the Southwest and the Norway have always been saying that they are being marginalized and not given equal rights like what the French people are getting. So they need equal rights.
1: Beginning in 2016, frustration surrounding the marginalization of English speakers by the Francophone majority gave rise to protests in the Northwest as well as an anglophone separatist movement, both of which have been violently and illegally repressed by the Cameroonian government. M's then-husband, as well as her late father, were card-carrying members of the SCNC, a non-violent secessionist organization that was declared illegal and has been subjected to state-sponsored violence since at least 2001. Worse, her husband's uncle was a high-profile leader of the SCNC at the time.
3: Because. He was a target, the whole family was a target. So it came a point where Bamenda was not safe anymore. Bamenda is the Norway's part of the region. It wasn't safe anymore. And for the fact that we had to
2: protest in the street for equal rights, we were targeted. Her husband and his uncle, the SCNC leader, were imprisoned. Government forces, suspecting M2, came for her next. With most of her family either jailed, dead, or forced to flee, she lived alone with her daughter.
3: They came to my house and they were looking for anything that could show that I was in the of the ACNC. They came and they were looking for ACNC cards, they were looking for fire, they were looking for anything that could say that I'm a member of the ACNC, which I wasn't. I was just a sympathizer. My husband was a member, but I was just a sympathizer because being a member, you have to have the ACNC card, but I I didn't have that card.
1: This next part contains descriptions of physical and sexual violence. Please skip ahead one minute if you'd rather not hear it.
3: So when they came in, um, I was with my daughter, when they searched the house and they could not find anything, the next thing they did was to rape me in front of my daughter. I was beaten. My tooth was my tooth was was removed. I was beaten myself in front of my daughter. The only thing that I was so scared about, at that time, my daughter was five years. The only thing I was scared about is that they're gonna do the same thing to her, what they did to me. I had no strength, nothing. I could not even protect her. She was screaming.
2: M realized it was too dangerous to stay. She had to leave her husband, who was still in jail, and flee her home. First she went to Nigeria, where she worked until she could afford a visa and a plane ticket to Mexico, where she issued her asylum claim to the United States.
3: And um, at that time when the judge heard everything they said he said, I don't have any reason not to grant you asylum. You've 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 gone through a lot and there's no reason why I shouldn't grant you asylum so that's how i found myself in the u.s uh yeah yeah
2: in 2016 M was received her case was heard and she was granted asylum but her brother who came and issued his claim three years later in 2019 has had a much harsher more typical experience one of inhumane conditions and grave uncertainty he's currently being held in the lasalle detention facility but when Em and I talked in early November, he was at Pine Prairie ICE Detention Center. They're both private, for-profit prisons in Louisiana, owned by the same company and contracted by the Louisiana Department of Corrections and ICE. And when did he arrive in the United States? How long has he been in the detention center?
3: He's been there for 15 months.
2: 15 months?
3: 15
2: months, yeah. And. Do you know where he is in the asylum process?
3: He lost his case. Um, he, he appealed the case, and he was denied. He was never given any, any opportunity for parole bond, even though I've been asking with different lawyers, but he was never granted parole or bond. And then his case two was denied.
1: as you've probably noticed, the asylum process is far from straightforward. There are two main factors that determine the likelihood of asylum being granted, and neither of them are in the control of the asylum applicant.
0: So there are two really important factors in the likelihood that an asylum applicant's uh, request for asylum will be granted. one is uh, access to counsel. Uh, and so, uh, you know, the, the, the rates for individuals who are successful in their applications for asylum dramatically increase when a person in, has representation. Uh, and the numbers, I don't have them on hand, uh, but are, are quite small, particularly for those individuals who are in detention, unfortunately. Access to counsel for those who are detained is dreadfully low. Um, the second aspect that's really important, however, is, is the, the roll of the dice in terms of who, which judge uh, you're appearing before. Now, of course, jurisdiction shouldn't matter, but uh, your evidence bears out that who you are appearing before has a great influence on the opportunity for you to be granted asylum or not.
1: Philip was not exaggerating when he said that the differences between different judges' rates of granting asylum were dramatic. They vary from under 1% from certain judges in Atlanta and Charlotte to over a 90% grant rate from a judge in Baltimore's immigration court. As Philip put it, which judge you get is just a roll of the dice, and for M's brother, the dice were loaded against him.
2: Why do you think you were accepted and your brother was not? It's
3: Louisiana and the judge that he has, um, the number of cases that he has judged, I heard that um, he has granted just two um, Cameroonians' asylum for the past 15 months. I don't know the right number, but other judges that grant asylum to Cameroonians, but he, uh, he doesn't.
2: If your application is denied by an immigration judge, the appeal process is daunting and it requires significant legal and financial resources.
0: If an applicant fails, uh, is application for asylum is denied before the immigration judge, they have an opportunity to appeal before the Board of Immigration appeals. Obviously, that process becomes almost impossible without counsel. Um... But sadly, the, the Board of Immigration Appeals and the Appellate Review has really been attacked by the, administ- by the executive branch. And whereas in prior times, um, the Board of Immigration Appeal all appeals were heard by a three-judge panel, um, that no longer is necessarily the case. And we are seeing what's called summary affirmances by the Board of Immigration Appeals, where essentially it's a one sentence denial saying we agree with the immigration judge, period. And so, and it's important to note that that, just, that change in the, the composition of the Board of Immigration Appeals really uh, happened again before the current administration. Uh, as prior administrations have sought to expedite the, ab- the appellate process uh, for cases before the Board of Immigration Appeals.
1: These are just some of the dehumanizing, unjust conditions asylum seekers like M's brother have been striking against. According to the nonprofit advocacy organization Freedom for Immigrants, 40 to 45 Cameroonian asylum seekers went on hunger strike at Pine Prairie, first in March, then beginning again in August they've used the only means they have to protest unhygienic and unsafe conditions, negligence of their cases, discriminatory treatment of Cameroonian asylum seekers' cases, and brutal repression and punishment for previous strikes. Among those striking since August 10, 2020, was M's brother, before he was moved to LaSalle. Due to a severe lack of transparency on the part of facility operators, it's hard to keep track of whether the strike is ongoing as of the publication of this story.
3: So they were like, we here, we don't see our ICE officers, we are not granted parole, we are not granted bond, and we have sponsors that are ready to take us in. They are just keeping us in here with no reason, no information, nothing. So that's how they began the, the
2: hunger strike. This is just one case. According to Freedom for Immigrants, there have been hunger strikes reported in at least 45 different immigrant detention centers across the US in 2020 alone. And those are just the strikes related to COVID-19 management, which in many facilities has ranged from inadequate to unethical. More often than not though, detainee protests are in response to their being held for years on end without their cases being fairly heard and with no opportunity to be released while they await their decisions.
1: And it's worse for some than others. Cameroonian asylum seekers, many of whom are held in Louisiana, like M's brother, are disproportionately harmed by these policies. According to the Southern Poverty Law Center, Cameroonian asylum seekers held in Louisiana are two and a half times more likely to be denied parole than non-African detainees.
2: What do you think will happen next? I
3: don't know. It's, it's really unpredictable right now because even as we speak, there are people that are about to be deported today
2: to Cameroon. According to Democracy Now!, an independent global news organization, another 50 Cameroonian asylum seekers were deported from the United States on November 10, 2020, the same day we spoke with them.
3: And to tell you the truth, the last people that were deported They are either missing, there have been newspapers, there have been articles that say that um, they are missing. Even the ones that are not missing, they say they can't go out because the American government did not even give their IDs. So they can't go out because they are scared of their lives.
1: Violent conflict continues to spread in Cameroon between militant Anglophone separatists and government security forces. Ongoing terrorist activity by Boko Haram in the north displaces thousands more. As tensions mount, the northwestern and southwestern regions are becoming increasingly dangerous for all inhabitants, let alone would-be refugees who were forced to return to Cameroon despite the obvious peril and ongoing political persecution awaiting them there.
3: We also got information that one of the women that we deported was shot. We don't know the outcome. We don't know what happened. We're trying to get to the sister back in Cameroon. We can't get to her. So a lot has been going on with the deportees. So you asking me, I don't know. It's really unpredictable because I don't know what to do anymore. I'm just like, this is it. I don't know. I'm scared for him. He's scared. And we don't know what is going to happen with him.
2: The last four years have witnessed historic lows for refugee resettlement in America. In 2016, 85,000 refugees were resettled in the U.S., while the Trump administration set the limit at just 18,000 for 2020, the lowest ceiling in four decades. Trump's rhetoric has also stoked xenophobia nationwide.
1: It's carried out incredibly harmful policies like family separation and blatantly illegal ones like denying entry to asylum seekers arriving through Mexico. That being said, most of the policies we discussed in today's episode aren't new. The United States has a long history of mistreating newcomers of all kinds, one that runs right up to the present. Em and her brother are among many people who, uprooted by violence and clinging to hope in America, have endured even more hardship once they got here.
2: If there's hope for Em's brother, it's that a new judge will recognize that he can't safely return to Cameroon the next administration could also reinstate policies that will let him stay with his sister in Los Angeles, at least until a decision is reached. Till then, he'll be stuck in prison with no conviction during a pandemic far from home.
1: We're War News Radio, a project of Swarthmore College. This episode was written and produced by Nick Hershel Burns and Zane Irwin. You can find more reporting at warnewsradio.org. Look out for more from War News Radio wherever you get your podcast. Thanks for listening.